time. Amen. Well, we are so glad that you're with us this morning. That is a great time of worship. Thank you, worship team. I, I don't know if you guys realize, you probably do, how blessed we are to have Paul and JR and, and Julie, yes, um, and Noah, the whole, or Jonah, sorry, and Jonah on the drums here. But, but how many people we have rotating through up here to lead us in worship? Uh, there's something about music that is just, draws our hearts toward God. And, and a lot of times we call the music part worship, but really it's all worship. Um, and so now we're going to transition to continue worship as we open God's word. And we're going to be in Ephesians, so go ahead and turn there. I'm looking around. Any high school students in here? I'm looking. Oh, well, right there. Okay. Are there any classes that you're taking right now that you think, I'm never going to use this? English? English? <laughs> what? <laughs> Wrong. You will read. Yeah, you'll use that. Reading is important. Um, English. Holly, you're in high school. Biology? Biology? Man, if only we had a biology teacher in the room. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> biology, I don't know. Later when, like, you have a headache, you know, and you're like, oh, my pancreas, you're going to, you know. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I mean, what do you got? Honors trig pre-calc. Honors trig pre-calc. You're right, you'll never use that. <laughs> wrong. Okay, unless you're going to be an engineer. Then you'll need to use honors trig pre-calc. Yeah. No, I, I had those classes. The, the class I had that I'm never going to use, I thought, was chemistry. Um, and I was right. Never used it, I think. Um, but wh what other classes did you have? I mean, think back. Those classes that you took, you're like, this is just a waste of time. Or how about those classes that might have been somewhat interesting, but you didn't think were real useful? Now, I loved, one of my favorite classes was home ec. And I know you're thinking, I know why a 15-year-old boy wants to be in home ec. Yes, but also, um, I learned how to sew. And yeah, I made some pillows with my initials. They were really cool. Um, I learned how to bake. I was also in 4-H, and I took baking with my sisters. And I made some really delicious eclairs. So it's great, because now, when my kids need something sewn, they come to me. They don't come to Callie. Um, and I can still bake pretty well, but they didn't teach us how to clean up, so Callie doesn't really like it when I bake. Um, I didn't learn that part. But there's something about those classes that are useful. You learn some things, and then you use them. And then there's those classes that you don't think you're ever going to use, or maybe like history. It's interesting, but it's kind of just facts. You know, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, some of those things. But actually, you know, history is quite useful. How about the Bible? A lot of times, we as a church, as, and I mean the, the church in general, have a temptation to approach the Bible like some of those knowledge classes. You know, like, like a history class where we're just learning the facts, we're learning the right words, the right names, the right dates, um, rather than maybe more like a home ec class where what we're reading and studying and learning should change the way we live. Well, there's a, that danger. Paul knows about that danger. Paul is the writer of Ephesians. So again, if you haven't turned there, turn there. Uh, there's a Bible in the seat in front of you. Um, use the table of contents if you need. Find the book of Ephesians. It's not very long. But Paul understands that idea of we can become just knowledge-based rather than doing. But also, there's also the danger in, in religion and in churches of I have to work really hard and do all these things. It's a list of rules, 
And so we're doing all these things while lacking some of the knowledge. Jesus said in John 5, he was speaking to some Pharisees. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. There were these people that were studying the scriptures, but it was all in their brain. Then they were, it all pointed to Jesus. And here was Jesus in front of them and they didn't even recognize him. It didn't move to their heart. But Jesus also said elsewhere, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus is passionately interested in our lives, not just in our devotion, not just in our worship, not just in our religion. He's very interested in you and the life you're living that it would be all that he has for you. That's exciting. He loves us so much. I mean, think of parents as kids, you know, when we have kids, don't you want your kids to have a great life? Not just do what they're told, although that's good, but you want them to have a great life. I, I mean, when your kids smile and it's a real smile, they're enjoying something, isn't that better than anything you can enjoy on your own? God's like that. And so he gives us his word to show us how to live and to help us live. Now, in Ephesians, there's only six chapters. The first three are all about knowledge. The first three have no commands in all three chapters. If you sum up what is the theme of the first three chapters, it's who you are in Christ. Do you want to know who you are in Christ? Study Ephesians 1 through 3. Listen to the podcast if you've missed them. Um, but we're going to sum it up right here on screen. 11 statements, 11 things that we saw in the first chapters. Do we have it? Cool. Um, uh, that it says about you and about what God has done, there are 11 things. The first one is that we are blessed blessed. Paul said you are blessed with all spiritual blessings. This doesn't just mean that you're going to be healthy, wealthy. Any, this is talking about spiritual blessings, meaning you've been given everything you need to thrive in this life. You know, it doesn't mean you're not going to get cancer. It doesn't mean you're not going to have financial troubles, but it means you have all you need in Christ. Uh, we're blessed. We are chosen. We saw that early on in Ephesians that God chose you. If you have placed your faith in him, in Jesus as Lord, God chose you, and he chose you before the foundation of the world. He didn't wait till you prove yourself good enough. He chose you. That's really cool. We are loved, loved, adored. Again, it's not just religion. It's this relationship we have with God our Father expressed in Jesus Christ. We are loved and, and liked. You know, that helps me a little bit to know God actually likes me, and he knows all my messiness even more than I do, and he actually still likes me. We're adopted, adopted, given a new name, brought into a new family. We are redeemed. We saw that in the first three chapters. Redeemed, it means your sin debt is paid in full. You your sin accrued this debt, and the Bible says for the wages of sin is death. But when Jesus died on the cross, it was stamped paid in full, redeemed, purchased off the slave market. You were, you were in the slave market. You and I, we were there. We were prisoners of sin, uh, condemned to hell because of our sin. But we were purchased by the blood of Jesus. We are forgiven. Forgiven. That means completely forgiven. So it's not like you come to Jesus and then you have to work for the forgiveness. You're completely forgiven. That's mercy. Complete, unearned. We are sealed. We saw in the first, sealed in the Holy Spirit. That means that when we were saved, 
When we placed our faith in Jesus as Lord, when we said, I believe Jesus, you died on the cross for my sins, I believe you rose from the dead, and now my life is your life. Doesn't mean we become sinless. Hopefully we sin less, but it doesn't make us perfect. But we are then sealed, meaning we're given the Holy Spirit. And with that Holy Spirit, we start to understand things a little better, uh, know things we, we couldn't know before. But the point of this sealing is the picture of you are mine, God says, stamped, and it can't be changed. You didn't earn your salvation, and so you can't lose it. If you could earn it, then you could lose it, but you can't earn it. That's what sealed means, meaning we have a secure hope. Just rest on that hope that you're sealed, meaning you know what forever is going to be like for you. Not exactly, but you know it's going to be with Christ and with me and with one another. Yet we, know some, we know some things. We are sealed. We are co-heirs with Christ. That's ridiculous. Meaning Jesus saying, all the riches that are mine, and by the way, he's God in flesh, so all the riches that are his are all the riches that could possibly be. He says, I give to you. I share with you. We are co-heirs. We see here, his, he saves us, he seals us, he brings us into his family so that he can continue to bless us forever. Not so that he can bring us into his kingdom so we can worship him and serve him, although yes, but so that he can just continue to bless us forever. We are, I like this one, enlightened to God's plan. We saw that in the first three chapters. We know the deep questions of life. Where did we come from? Why are we here? What happens when we die? What's the plan? Well, the plan is to sum up all things in Christ. That's the plan. And, and now what's the plan? Well, now God is going to continue to reveal himself to the world through his church, through us, us messed up, growing people. We know his plan. We are made alive spiritually. We, we move from dead to alive spiritually. And then the last one is we are united with all God's people. These are all truths about us that we saw in the first three chapters, we are united with all God's people. White, black, Hispanic, Asian, whatever. Man, woman, we're all united, one. There's no separation between Jew, Gentile. We're all one in Christ. Now, I want you to notice something. These things about us, they're not what we're becoming. These aren't aspirational. They are who you are. These are all gifts given to you because of what Jesus did on the cross and your response of faith. Remember Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not as yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so no one can boast. You get this for free. Can we just rest on that just a second? This is who you are. Now, if you're in here and you're not a believer, you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord, this is not who you are. But this is who God wants you to be. God wants to give you this, and he wants to give it to you today. And by the way, we're having a baptism after the second service. We don't have one this service, so it's available. At the end of the service, when we do worship, if anybody here is like, it's my time to get baptized, I believe, and I haven't been baptized, uh, go back and see anybody in the back booth there and, and tell them, I want to get baptized, and they'll wave one of us down. But we can do that today. So again, if you're not a believer, it's not like, hey, look at what we have and you don't. It's an invitation. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's Jesus' invitation. That's what he wants. And then you can also receive all of this. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ... 
They're a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. So, with all that in mind, look at Ephesians chapter 4. We're only going to look at six verses this morning. We're going to see two real themes, and we're going to start with the first one in verse 1. It says, I, therefore, referring to everything we've already said, all these 11 things we found about, out about us, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Again, think about the first three chapters and all the blessings that are ours and read this verse one more time. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This call, we are chosen by God. Not just chosen to be part of his family, but we're called to a calling. This church, we saw in the first three chapters, the church is now God's presence on earth. In the Old Testament, he was present in his temple. Now he's present in his people gathered, not a building, in his people, in you and in me. And we are called to something. We're called to be a body, but we're also called to a mission. You know, Jesus, he said in Matthew 28, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And by the way, I'm with you to the end of the age. Elsewhere, Jesus says, as the Father sent me, I send you. So we have this great mission as a church, this calling to be God's people and to carry out his mission. God works through his people, not around them. Because of who we are in Christ, Paul urges us to live up to our great calling. He says, I, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy. The walk, this is talking about in every day living it out. A walk. What do you do in the morning when you wake up? What do you do when you're at school? What do you do when you're at work? A walk. It's not just what you do Sunday or what you do when you attend your outpost group, which hopefully you do. It's every single day. It's what you think about while you're falling asleep. Your walk. How do you spend your money? How do you spend your time? How do you treat your kids? How do you treat your parents? The, the, it's every aspect of our lives, our walk. And he says, let your walk be worthy, worthy of the calling to which you have been called. All these things we said about us, wouldn't it make sense that our lives would line up with that? I don't know if you guys know this. I learned this, actually. The Queen of England, she's actually the head of state in Great Britain and also in Canada and Australia and South America, she's the head of state in a bunch of other places in the world. Imagine the Queen of, of England going to Australia, you know, which used to be a prison colony anyway. She goes there, and she finds a, a prisoner in jail, a young man there in jail. He's guilty of whatever he's guilty of. And the Queen goes through, and with her power and authority, goes and, and pardons that man. Says, I want that, that man there. Well, he's guilty. Well, I, I pardon him. She pardons him. You know, he gets his papers, and, and he's leaving the prison. And as he leaves, up rolls the queen. She's probably not driving. She's probably in the back. But, but, but up rolls the, the queen to pick him up, and he gets in the back seat with, with her. I mean, a little bit crazy. You know, they then drive to the airport, and they hop on her private jet, which is probably pretty cool. She's the queen of England. And they fly all the way to Great Britain. Now, as they're flying, her lawyer comes in and, and, and puts these papers in front of this young man. Of, the queen wants to adopt you. 
It's all going to be official. It's all going to be legal. It's all real. She wants to adopt you. And you'll be equal with all the rest of her sons and daughters and grandsons. And, and, you know, I think she has a lot of them now. But you'll be just like one of those. I mean, imagine that picture. And then he goes there and he lives in the palace there in England with all the blessings, all the tapioca pudding you can eat, uh, all the blood sausage. I think they eat that there. I mean, but great food, great garden. I mean, all this life. Then one day she calls him in, says, son, you know, you're my son. I want you to represent me as my ambassador to some of these other places that I rule. I want you to go and represent me. And he goes, now picture him going to this UN meeting, representing the queen, being her son, in cutoff shorts and flip-flops and a hat side. You know what I mean? This, this picture of, of kind of unwashed and unsha- that just wouldn't make sense. That's kind of this idea of Christians walking like the rest of the world. It doesn't make sense. Walk according to who you are. It would make sense for him to carry himself as a noble because that's what he is now, as the son of the queen, as a prince. That's the picture that Paul is trying to give us. Walk worthy because, by the way, if you're adopted, you are royalty. Again, no pat on your back, but you're adopted by the king. The king of all, you are a son or daughter of the king. Walk like it. Our worthy walk is based on our relationship with the king and who we now are in him. That's what our worthy walk is based on, who we are in him. Now, let me give us a little bit of grace here. Anybody struggling with this worthy walk? Okay, I'm the only one. <laughs> this can be a struggle. Let's be honest. Uh, walking worthy, walking in a way that glorifies God is kind of like throwing left-handed if you're right-handed. You know, you're right-handed and, and you're just used to throwing right-handed. That's the way we used to live. We lived like the rest of the world. We lived according to our flesh. It just came natural. This is what we did. Then we're saved. We come to know Christ. Christ gives us all these blessings and then says, now walk differently. I want you to now throw left-handed. You know, it's, it's, it's not natural at first. It takes some practice. Now, sometimes, and some of you have experienced this, sometimes you come to know Christ, you surrender to him, and immediately certain habits are broken. Certain sin things are just taken away immediately. But a lot of times it's a process. A lot of times it's a process called sanctification of where we then surrender to Jesus and we practice his life in us and, and we learn that we have the power over sin because of him in us, and it takes some time to work through that. So there's some grace, this worthy walk, you know, kind of like a a toddler learning to walk, they trip sometimes. And and parents, when they tripped, it's not like you kicked them and, get up, you should, you know. It's like, oh, how cute, you know, pick it, let's, (laughs) you know. Or maybe like me, you used to throw pillows under their feet as they were learning to walk, that was fun. Um, God doesn't do that. But as parents, we're patient As our kids are learning to walk, God is patient with us too. But the command is still there. Walk worthy. This isn't legalism. This is the relationship we have with him that now we respond by walking in a way that glorifies him. And I want to point out, we're going to talk more about this in our groups. So if you're not in a group this week, feel free to jump in one. We haven't been going that long. But how do we walk worthy? Look back at Ephesians 3. 16, it's just one page over. 
Paul is praying for them, and he says, I pray that according to the riches of his glory, that's God's glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. That's how we walk worthy. We're strengthened by him in us. Again, we're sealed. It's him in us. There's the power. Paul elsewhere says, walk by the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Jesus in John 15, 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. This isn't moralism. This isn't religion. This is a relationship where we hold tightly to Jesus and he helps us walk worthy. Again, if that's difficult, go to a group this week and talk about it. Share that it's difficult. Share some strategies of how to walk uh, in the spirit, how to rely on Jesus in, in every day, in every part of every day. So here's, here's that first one, walk. Walk worthy. Now, where do you think Paul's going to go first? He shares all these truths about us. He says, because of this, because of who you are, walk worthy. And here's the first thing we're going to talk about. Verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. The first indicator of our new life in Christ is how we treat fellow believers. That's the first place he goes. He goes to the unity of the church. You know, maybe you have felt this way in your life, or maybe you've met people that go, you know what? I believe in God. I believe in Jesus, but I don't really want to be part of, of a church. That's not aligned with Scripture. I, I mean, I'm kind of an introvert. I would love the idea of, of living in a cave in the middle of nowhere, but that's not what God has really called us to. I mean, maybe some weird, unique hermit. But we're actually called to community. And maybe you're an introvert like me, but guess what? The church needs you. God has put you here for, for a purpose. And so he tells us that because of our new life in Christ, we are to be united, one body. You know, these first words used in, in verse 2, humility, gentleness, patience, these are all relational words. You can't really do these alone. Paul seems to have an expectation that we will live in community. Jesus had the same expectation. You know, Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by the way you love one another. So what's our, our greatest testimony in evangelism to those who don't know him yet? Our unity, our love for one another. Because of who we are in Christ, we fight for unity in the church. We fight for unity. You know, it's kind of cool. This morning, uh, we pray every Sunday morning, uh, a half hour before the service starts. We pray that God will be here, that he'll do his things, that he'll work in the hearts of all of us that show up. Um, and we have a prayer team that meets before that. And they pray in that back room, and you're invited to both. If you're, if you're serving on a certain Sunday, you come a half hour early because we all pray together. But kind of the cool thing this morning uh, was... You know, as I was here and kind of announcing, here's what's going on today. Here's the things I think we should pray for. The prayer team said, we already prayed for all of that, <laughs> which was kind of neat because they had the same promptings in them of here's the things that matter that we should be praying for. And then I shared the same thing. Here's the things I think that matter. 
we have this unity of one spirit there and there, you know, and we're all following God. I think that's the picture that we have of Jesus being the head of the church and leading. And as we follow him, we're united in him. And because of who we are in him, we fight for that unity to maintain this unity. So at Common Ground here, we don't have membership. You know, a lot of churches have membership, and membership is a good thing. I'm not against membership. But the word member kind of sounds like you're joining a club to get all these benefits. Rather, we have all-in ministers. So those who want to commit to Common Ground and are willing for Common Ground to commit to them, sign a covenant. It's an all-in covenant. An all-in, you know, A-L-L-I-N. That last N, and we're going to teach on this at the beginning of next year, that last N is not about me. So for somebody to be all in here at Common Ground, they actually sign this thing. The last N is not about me. We fight for peace. Meaning, when there's a hint of disunity, we jump on it right now. And we've done this. You know, there's been times where there's disunity, and we've had to go and go, all right, we need to fix this. You know, let's get these two parties together because we can't be a church and continue with this grumbling. We have to deal with it. We fight for unity. And that's what he says here. He says, be eager, verse 3, eager to maintain the unity. That, e- that word eager is helpful. It, it means speedy and, and effective. Be, be quick. Be eager to maintain. So we have this unity. If you notice that, he says, don't go get unity. Maintain the unity you already have. So we already have this unity we maintain, and we're eager, meaning if anything starts to get in, we jump on it. We're quick. You know, a lot of times, and in churches, because we're so loving and nice, we just sit back and and let, it'll go away, right? This tension between people or between you and somebody, you're like, it'll just go away. I'm just going to ignore it. It'll just go away. That's not what Paul says. He says, jump on it. Jump on it, eager to maintain the unity again. Jesus said, all people will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. It is so important, but yet it seems so fragile. Listen to this. The best way to derail a church from its effectiveness is to break up its unity. It's the best way to take a church basically off the field and put them on the bench. You know, God is here to to build his kingdom. You know, our mission statement is written somewhere. I think it's outside. You know, but we are here to expand the kingdom of God in our lives and the world around us. God wants to work through his church. But if we can get all messed up inside, we're not going to be very effective out there on the field. <laughs> I think of a, I think I was a freshman. We were playing football, and there was something happening with the quarterback, not going so well with the front line. And we, when the line, line, I was on the line, we lined up, and one was like, nobody block, nobody block. <laughs> and he called hike, and we all just stood up sideways. He got creamed. Anyway. You're not going to work out very well if you have disunity within a team. That's the picture. I know. Isn't that horrible? can't believe we did that. You know, maybe you've heard the story of the man who was stranded on an island for years all by himself. And he gets rescued in the ship as they're driving away. He looks and the captain says, I see three huts on that, that island. I thought you were there alone. He said, yeah. He said, that one's my house. That one's my church. That's where I used to go to church. <laughs> You know, it, there's just this tendency to, to hurt one another and to move on rather than fixing it, rather than reconciling and maintaining that unity. Again, we look at that list. You know, think of maybe the disunity you've experienced 
within church or, or things like that. Why? Why did those things happen? There's only a handful of reasons. Well, they hurt me and I can't forgive them. That, that one happened. They hurt me. They did me wrong. Well, look back at that list of who we are in Christ. One of those things is we are forgiven. Scripture is pretty clear. Those who are forgiven should be forgiving. We are so quick. Jesus, just picture what Jesus went through going to the cross. Picture his whips and his suffering for you and for me. He didn't deserve it. I deserved it. And he went through that and he kept his mouth shut. When they blindfold him and, and beat him, who's beating him? And then they put this crown of thorns on He didn't deserve it. He was so forgiving. It says, while we were still sinners, while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. And then we, well, they wronged me. I can't forgive. That's not, that's not Christ in us. You see how that doesn't align with who we are in him. Well, and here's the other thing that, that I've seen separate unity is a fight for power and influence and authority. It's I want this role or I want to get my way. And this person, no, I want to get my way and I'm going to form a group my way. Ooh, I'm going to form a group my way. And, it, and it's just, that's not the church because we are united in Christ. And so we are eager to maintain this unity. This is in your notes. The church is united by one Holy Spirit, one ultimate plan, one Jesus, one truth. Now, there's a danger. And we're going to dig into that a little bit. But the danger is because we want to be so inclusive and peaceful that we just ignore everything. That to maintain unity, we overlook things. And so as you look at the American church today, some of those things that have been overlooked is the inerrancy of Scripture. Oh, you know what? We're not going to stand firm on Scripture because others might disagree with it, and we want to all get along, and everybody's included, so everybody's okay. Or how about just not talking about heaven and hell? Oh, we're just not going to talk about sin or punishment because that makes people feel bad. Well, we can't do that. We maintain the unity, but there is one faith, one truth. See, look at this list in verse 4. One body. So there's one church, one spirit, one Holy Spirit, one Lord, that is Jesus Christ, one hope, one faith, one baptism. There are those things that unite us, and we stand on those central things. There are secondary doctrines that we hold secondary. You know, what does the end look like? Well, you can have this opinion or that opinion, and based on Scripture, you can actually have good evidence for different, but here's what we do know, he's coming back, and we look for, amen. So we stand on that. How does our free will and God's sovereignty work out? Uh. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's one of those, there's a tension there, and, and we can go far here and go, oh, I understand it, and it's this, and somebody else, no, I understand it, and, it's, and then there's this, you know what? They're both true. God is sovereign, and, we're, and there's these things that, we keep those things secondary, but there's some things that we do stand on, the inerrancy of the Word of God. The Bible is the inerrant Word of God. We stand on that truth. If somebody came in here going, you know what? I want to teach a Bible study, and, and, and we want to read it however we want. Like, you can read it and then go, hey, how, what does this mean to you, and what does this mean to you? And it can mean whatever it wants. We're not going to do that because this means whatever the author intended it to mean when they wrote it. It can't mean anything else. It can maybe apply differently, but it can't mean anything else. Uh, you know, Ephesians here was written by Paul in the first century, inspired by the Holy Spirit. It can't mean anything other than what he meant it to mean. 
We stand on that. How about this one? Belief in Jesus' death and resurrection and faith in Jesus as Lord as the only way to salvation. We stand on that. If somebody says, I believe in universalism, we're not united with that because that's not the truth. Everybody's not going to make it, and you throw the gospel out. And then we also remember Jesus' death and resurrection and place our hope in his imminent return when he will set up his perfect rule and set right what sin broke. We stand on these things. And there's other things. The Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We stand on that. But again, we hold secondary doctrines secondary. But here's, here's the point, and I think Paul is making this point in here. We're united and we maintain it, but we're not united with everybody. We're not united with Muslims. We're not united with, with Mormons. We're not united with Jehovah's Witness because they're not in line with Scripture. They're not part of the one church, one body. But we are united with every other church in town that believes this word. It's not just us as common ground. We're actually united with all those other churches as well. That's exciting. And I think it's important to maintain that unity as well. So practical, we're going to run through these real quick. Four things. How do we maintain unity? So we, we see we, we're supposed to walk worthy. We walk worthy by maintaining unity. Real practical, how do we do it? Go back to verse 2. Humility. This is the opposite of pride. We consider others as more important than ourselves. Humility. How often, you know, those who are married, maybe you've experienced this, uh, you get in an argument, a fight, the other one has wronged you, and then you, you learn the truth of it, and you're like, oh, they didn't actually mean that, or I heard that the wrong way. It's the same within the church. One of those ways to protect unity is assume the best and seek clarification. If so, has somebody wounded you, put on your humility real quick. It's not about you. But then go seek clarification. Number two, gentleness. Gentleness. That's not the idea of weakness. That word gentle, it, it means self-control. It actually means strength under control. It's the word that would use, be used for a horse that's been broken. You know, a horse maintains its strength, but a small child can get on and lead it around. That's gentleness, meekness. We are in control of the Holy Spirit. This is how we treat one another. Number three, you see in these verses, in verse two, patience. Patience. That word literally means long-suffering. So you're called to suffer a long time with the rest of us. Why? Because we hurt one another. We're still in these bodies. We still have sin. We still struggle. And so we suffer long, very slow to anger. That's what this is talking We're very, very slow to anger. And then love. Love. Love is doing what is best for the other person when they least deserve it at great personal cost. Love is doing what's best for the other person when they least deserve it at great personal cost. Imagine a church where every individual is committed to these four things. Humility, gentleness, patience, and love. I'm committed to these things with you. And now together, we're going to carry out God's mission Wow, what might God do to a city with that group of people? Honestly, we're blessed right now. I think he's doing it in this body, and I'm so excited to be part of it. So guess what? Don't mess it up. <laughs> That's what Paul's saying. Don't mess it up. God is doing things. We're united in him. 
Not because your leaders are great. Not because you guys are super special. Because he does it. So just get over yourself and follow me. And, and I feel like that's our role. Derek, get over yourself and follow me. I don't want to own a building. Get over yourself. It's not about you. Do what I tell you to do. And, and together, man, when we get over ourselves and follow him, what great things will he do in us and through us? Again, these character traits that we see, they're created by Jesus in us. The danger is when you go, okay, I'm going to go work really hard to be patient. Although we do, I mean, eager, there is the idea of work, but there's a tension there between our own effort and our own reliance on Jesus. Our greatest effort should be in holding on tight to Jesus. That's where our effort should be put. And then when the other person wrongs you, guess what? There's some effort in going back to Jesus and putting on humility and recognizing who you are in him. But what might God do through a body? Again, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You know, we're going to move to worship, but I, I want to point to the water over here again. As we begin to sing, if you're here and you hear all those things and you hear about what the church is to be and you go, I want, I want in. Part of baptism is being baptized into the body, the body of Christ. And so if you have placed your faith in Jesus as Lord, if you believe that he died on the cross, rose from the dead, and, and you want in, I want that forgiveness, I want that life, I'm going to be in the back, come see me. And we'll baptize you right here, right now. Let me pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you. Thank you for who we are in you. God, thank you that you create the unity. We don't have to create it. We just maintain what you've already done, what you've already given to us. God, we love you. We ask that you would preserve our unity and that you would use us for great things. God, I pray for each of us individually in this room. God, if we have those things that we're struggling with, if our walk is not living up to who we are in you, Holy Spirit, point those things out to us in your gentle and gracious way. Uh, and if we're hard-headed, go ahead and kick us. But show us that. And then give us the strength to tell somebody else. Give us the humility to share that weakness with somebody else. And then give that person or our group leaders or our groups the wisdom and the love and the patience to come alongside and to walk through together. That's what's so beautiful about your church. We're not here to, to judge one another in, in putting legalistic rules, but we're here to walk together, to help each other walk worthy. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.